great to be here this evening to worship God, and let's continue as we read from His Word. We're going to continue our series in Philippians chapter 4, so if you're online or in the hall or in the meeting house here, let's turn up Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 9. Philippians chapter 4, we're near the end of our series. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1 through 9. This is God's word to us. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crowned, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us this evening. Well, as we look at this passage, what I want to think about is this. How can we be a joyful church? How can we be a joyful church? That's our desire. We want to be joyful here in this place. We want to know the, the joy of the Lord in our salvation, and we want that joy to overflow into our meeting. Whenever we gather into this place, whenever we sing His praise, that joy will characterize us. Well, we know what it's like whenever you hear a funny noise on your car. You hear coming, and you just hope that it will go away. And I'm looking at Davy, and Davy's looking at me. And this is what I do sometimes, and then I have to go to Davy to fix it, right? We start to hear a, a funny noise in the car, and you just hope that it will go away. Well, maybe a few days later, the light comes on in the car, and you think to yourself, well, if I just turn this car on and off, maybe the light will go away. And you go on for another few days, and the noise is getting worse, and the light's on. So what do you resort to? Well, you resort to keeping the windows up, and to turning the radio up and thinking, well, if I can't hear it, it'll just go away. And it doesn't. And finally, you have to take it to the mechanic, and he describes your problem accurately. Is it doing this? Is it doing this? Does it make that sort of sound? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what's wrong with it. And you dread the bill that is about to come your way. Well, in many ways, tonight as we look at Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to focus on 2 through 9, it's Paul not allowing us to just keep driving, as it were, as a church family, with the windows up and with the radio on, ignoring all of the problems. He's not going to let us do that. Instead, he's going to tackle these problems head on. And what he's trying to tell us this evening, what he's trying to show us is the common problems that appear in a church fellowship. 
the common problems that arise in, in church life and how as we as disciples need to deal with them. So what do we see? Well, look at verse 2. We see there's disputes. Verse 4, there's joylessness. Uh, verse 5, there's a lack of graciousness or gentleness. Verse 6, there is anxiety. Verse 8, there are impure thoughts or worldliness. And verse 9, there's complacency in the discipleship. That's the opposite of all of these, some of these lists that we have heard here. So what does it look like tonight for us in Hill Street to seek to be a healthy, joyful, flourishing church family? What does it look like for us to see people saved and disciples made? Well, I hope we're going to see four things here this evening. A united people, we need to be a united people, a praising people, a praying people, and then a peculiar people. So first of all, a united people. If you ever watch rugby, you'll see that two opposition sides end up having to have a scrum at a certain point, and many hours are spent practicing how to scrum whenever you're uh, learning how to be a rugby player, you have a scrummaging machine, and all eight men engage the scrummaging machine together. They're all linked together, they're all united together, and they're all heading in the one direction together. And as they hit the machine, they're hoping that they'll be able to move it. But they are relentless in the one direction. And as a church, this is one of our primary callings to be united, to be together. This is where the strength of the church comes from. And that's what we've thought about throughout Philippians, being united to Christ and to each other. As, as the Holy Spirit forges us together, as He welds us together, as we are disciples. And Paul deems unity in the church to be of the utmost importance. Look at, look at it here in verse 2. Imagine being these two ladies, two ladies as, as this is being read out in the church. And Paul names them. Judea and Syntyche agree in the Lord, verse 2. Now, we're not told what the problem is. It's unlikely to be doctrinal because we can see in verse 3 that, that Paul says these ladies' names are written in the Lamb's book of life. They are in the book of life. These, these people are Christian people. So it's likely that there's been a relational issue. There's been some sort of disagreement. They have been working together, working, working in the gospel, we can see, verse 3. They have, they have labored side by side with Paul. But maybe in this close work, they've started to jar with one another, rub each other up the wrong way. But whatever has happened, there's been a breakdown in relationship, and Paul deems it significant enough here to address it. No room for arguments. No room for a fallout. And so we must see the seriousness of this in our own church family. A fallout between church members is the business of the whole church. This letter is read to everyone in the assembly. So instead of saying it's no one's business, or instead of turning a blind eye to a fallout in the church, it is the business of the church because as members we are all part of the one body. And so sin affects the whole body. Now, Paul loves this church. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
Paul doesn't just launch onto these two ladies and their, their particular disagreement. He does it with a, a pastoral loving heart. Look at the language that is used in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I love and I long for. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're my beloved. He's not taking out the stick to scold them, but he loves these people, and therefore he wants to see the relationship mended. He wants this church to be healthy and to flourish. What does he want their reputation to be? He wants it to be a united one that this is what the gospel does. It takes people of different ages, of different stages in life, and it brings them together. It unifies them in Jesus. And so, that's a powerful gospel witness. And so, tonight, this is important for the sake of the gospel. And in verse 3, he says, look, you, you need to come along and help them. He identifies a couple of people in this church fellowship to come along and to help and to reconcile these two ladies. And the question for us tonight is, can we pretend like something like this would never happen in Hill Street? Or do you think to yourself tonight, well, if I did have a disagreement with someone, it wouldn't be my fault. It would be their fault. And that's the very point. You see, we need to be careful here tonight. The gospel witness is at stake. Our reputation in this area is at stake. Believers in this place must have the same mind. They must see, see eye to eye in the gospel. Agree, verse 2, in the Lord. And it's not saying that we need to think the same about politics. It's not saying that we need to think the same about world affairs. We can have disagreements on those things. We can have healthy debate on those things. But whenever it comes to the gospel, whenever it comes to relational integrity, we must love each other. We cannot be people of hate. We cannot be people who disagree with one another viciously here in the fellowship. But we have to love. And therefore, we have to find common ground. And our common ground is the gospel, united to each other, because we share in this. And so, we as the church here on earth should be reflective of what the church will be like in heaven. If you don't get on with your brother and sister here, it's going to be a long eternity because you're going to be with them in heaven. So, do you see yourself as a threat to unity in this place? Do I see myself as a threat to unity in this place? We should. These two ladies are wonderful gospel servants. They're working hard for the gospel. They're working hard for Jesus. They're striving side by side. They're passionate people for the gospel. And yet here they find themselves at odds with each other. And what's the key to this? Well, they have to go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, 1 through 11. Paul tees us up for this. To have the mind of Christ among themselves. And so, my beloved, he urges them, come to a point of healing. Care for one another. Have the same mind in the Lord. Sort it out. Fix it. Sit down with one another and someone else and see I die. Well, we also then need to be a united people, but a praising people. And this flows into verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's really hard if we are a people who are worshiping Jesus, who are exalting and magnifying Jesus to be people who disagree. 
If we come into this place, and this is one of the things I miss most over lockdown, coming into this place and being able to sing with one another. Now, I know we still have to do it behind a mask, but it's just amazing to be able to sing with God's people. But we have to be a praising people. Rejoice in the Lord always. No room for maneuvering here. Again, I will say it. Rejoice because it's a hallmark of the believer. It's part of who we are. It's in our DNA that we should be a worshiping people, a people who take great delight in Jesus. And as we take great delight, as we worship Him in this place, it brings healing to division. And our joy flows out. And Paul, Paul, he's emphasizing this theme of joy, maybe because there's a sense of joylessness here in this church community in Philippi. Maybe a sense of familiarity has started to set in, a sense of sameness, of, of going through the motions. Maybe Paul could see that deadness was starting to creep in, starting to grow around this fellowship like ivy. It was starting to grow in around the believers and to choke them. And therefore, he's emphatic. Joy in the Lord. Praise the Lord. George Muller, George Muller will come up on screen here. George Muller lived in the 1800s in England, and he cared for around 10,000 orphans during his life. And this is what he said. He looks like a happy man. He looks like a, 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 a happy man there behind that beard. He says this, the first great and primary business every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Now, I know for some of us, this is going to be a great problem. We've never risen a day in our lives and been in great form, or perhaps you're common, or the, the phrase, you, you've got out of the wrong side of the bed, you need to go back, is, is, is something that you have to deal with. I understand that we all have different dispositions. I understand that we've all got different characteristics in our life, but here, George Muller understands it. The most thing, the most important primary business, the great business each and every day is to have his joy in the Lord, to get into Scripture, to see who Jesus is, to see who our God is, and to have that refresh and retrain his heart so that he may be happy in the Lord. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you and I want? We want the delight in the Lord to have this unshakable, secure, unstealable joy. But here's the problem. We read verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, and we think, that's lovely, but that's just icing on the Christian cake. That's just something for those who have progressed really well in the faith, who are super spiritual, but that's not really for me. Some Christians get to be happy. I'm just not one of them. But for the Christian, joy is not optional. Joy in God is not optional. It's not an icing for some to savor. It's central and it is essential we cannot glorify God as we ought unless our souls are satisfied in Him, and therefore from that satisfaction we praise Him. Our souls have to be satisfied in Him so that we can praise Him. Martin Luther said this, the Christian ought to live a life of doxology, a living doxology. What does that mean? Well, it means to live a life of constant praise. That's who the Christian should be or what the Christian should be. 
And this is why the Apostle Paul says it plainly, and he says it unapologetically, that this is a command and an exhortation. And therefore, it erodes any notion of a clock-in, clock-out Christianity, of some sort of dead form of religious practice. Because here, this verse, verse 4, shapes who we are. It shapes our whole posture as Christian people. And I think often whenever we talk about joy, something happens in our minds. It's like a switch goes off or an automatic translation happens. And we think that joy is rooted in everything but Christ. We think that whenever we talk about joy, that means that, that we've got to feel secure, that we've got to have enough finances, that we've got to be comfortable, that we've got to be successful, that we've got to be liked. And so real joy, this always joy that Paul writes about, can feel unattainable. But as we thought about before, our joy does not depend, does not depend upon our earthly circumstances, but on our unchanging, ever-faithful, good God. That's where the letter starts, verse 1, united to Christ, in Christ. And so it should be obvious for those who try to find their joy in the things of this world, if you've went into the world and tried to taste the things of the world, it should be obvious that our God is so different. Here's a good question. Could you settle for a God who can't make you happy in a prison cell? Would you settle for a God who can't make you happy in a prison cell? Everything else is stripped away. Would you have joy? Will your car give you joy in a prison cell? Highly unlikely. Will your money give you joy in a prison cell? Highly unlikely because it's no use to you. Will anything that you put your hope in give you joy in a prison cell? No, it won't. Will Jesus give you joy in a prison cell? Yes, he will. Because you're safe and you're secure with him. Paul is in a prison cell and he is filled with joy. So friends, never settle for a God who cannot satisfy you in a prison cell. Paul goes through this letter and he says, to be with Jesus is more precious than gold. To be with Jesus is sweeter than honey. To be with Jesus is everything. And so joy in God, joy in God is hard for us to wrap our heads around because we struggle so much in this life. So many things come our way that can steal our joy. But joy in God is not like flipping a switch. Joy in God is something that, that has to be learned Look at the very final verse that we looked at, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice these things. It's a discipline. Just like Muller says, to get up every morning, it's a discipline. Joy will not just happen to us. We have to practice. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Paul says, I have learned learned in whatever situation to be content. And so it's difficult to be joy-filled Christians, to be a joy-filled church. It is difficult. There are times when we will be filled with grief, filled with sorrow, that we will go through the crucible of suffering. But in these moments, our hearts can still be lifted in worship to God because He is the one who satisfies. That never changes. He satisfies. 
So Paul doesn't teach us that we should come into church and skip around, totally detached from the real world. He teaches that even in the hard times that the Christian can drink deeply from the well of salvation that produces joy even in the midst of struggling. And so Christian joy is not fake happiness. It's so much more. What is it? Well, look at verse 7. It is the peace. See how these are linked? Rejoicing in the Lord, there's unity, and then there's peace that flows from that. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And so, this rejoicing in the Lord is linked directly to being in the Lord. See that? Rejoice in the Lord. And so, the prescription to all of the problems in church, the prescription to all of the problems in this church in Philippi, Paul is saying, is to rejoice, is to praise God, is to have joy in Jesus. It's to worship Him, to treasure Him, to be satisfied in Him, to delight in Him, to long for Him, to tell others about Him, to live for Him, to taste and to see that He is good. And a church where we practice all of these things, it will cover a a multitude of sins. If we are genuinely rejoicing in the Lord, it'll cover over envy and jealousy, It'll cover over our arrogance and complaining, our discontentment, our stinginess. Because a church that is rejoicing in Jesus is a church that heart loves Jesus. A church that is rejoicing in Jesus is a church that's heart loves Jesus in the good times and in the bad times, exalting His name together. So imagine this. Imagine coming to Hill Street every week into a worship service where everyone is radically and deeply joyful, authentically engaged with God in praise throughout the entire service, praising as we come in, praying as we sing, praising as we listen, praising as we go, that we come into this place and we worship We worship as we engage our hearts and our minds in prayer and praise to our God, bringing our confession before Him, thanking Him, praising Him, pleading with Him. And then isn't it the dream that hundreds of others would come? Not just tens or twenties, but hundreds would come and join us in worship. And there would be no anxiety about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving that we would make our requests known to our Lord and that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would guard us and guard our hearts and our minds and set us free to seek the kingdom first. A praising people. A praying people. We need to be a praying people. Like the mechanic that knows what is wrong with the car or what is likely to go wrong with the car, Paul says again, and he launches into this, there can be something that tries to steal our joy, this joy that we've thought about. And he names it as anxiety. Verse 6, 
do not be anxious about anything. If we are to preserve this joy that we have talked about, if we have to, if we have to watch over it and guard it, then we must pray. Because any joy that we have in Christ will be perpetually under assault by Satan, by sin, by temptation, by ourself, by sufferings, by what happens to us in the world. And Paul names this anxiety as the struggle that many will face. In the book of Proverbs, anxiety is, is said in chapter 12 and verse 25 that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Anxiety is a species, a, a type of fear. It paralyzes us with the what-ifs. It's the fear that something we dread might possibly come true. Now, not all anxiety is sinful, but all anxiety must be prayed through. That's what Paul tells us here, because it consumes us. If you've struggled with anxiety, it commands the breath of your thoughts. It fills them with dread. It's an unfurling scroll of worst-case scenarios. It extinguishes hope. It pummels our faith. And it's a favorite tool of the enemy. And what he does is he uses this to silence God's voice and to, trump, and to trumpet all our fears. So what do we do? Whenever this comes to steal our joy, what do we do? Well, verse 5, we have to remember Paul says, the Lord is at hand. He's right here with us. He's in the fight with us. He will not leave us. And so he says, verse 6, don't be anxious, do not be anxious in anything. Now, surely we look at that and we think ourselves, dead on, Paul, in anything? Now, you can't mean anything. Surely there's times, surely there's times whenever we should be anxious. Surely there's times whenever we will be devastated. Surely there will be times when we will suffer trials. Yes, do not be anxious about anything. Because our God knows our difficulties. Our God can be with us in the midst of the shortness of breath, in the midst of the racing heart, the restless nights, the, the thoughts that bombard us and control us. God is with us. And He says it is possible by His Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural work. How does he describe this peace that comes then? Verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. You see, it's not, it's not like a human way of thinking. This surpasses all understanding. It's a supernatural act as we come to God and He relieves us. He brings us His peace. So what do we do whenever anxiety seeks to cripple us? We do not submit to its tyranny, but instead when anxiety comes, we run to pray. What does Jesus do throughout the Gospels? Time and time again, he, he pulls himself away from the crowd and he goes to pray. What's going on in Jesus' heart whenever he's in the garden and he brings the disciples with him just before the cross and he runs to prayer with his father? So when your anxieties talk to you, you don't talk back to them. You talk to God, says John Bloom. Why? Because anxiety cannot breathe easy in an atmosphere of prayer. 
And as we pray, it redirects our attention away from ourselves, away from the all-consuming problem, and to our all-powerful God. And we'll have to do this for the rest of our lives until He calls us home. A battle, a fight. But it's worth it, isn't it? We want joy in this place. And look at the result, verse 7. This peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and it will guard your minds, your head and your heart. Again, Jesus says in Luke 12 and 22, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This is such a powerful promise for us. Jesus is saying there's enough grace in me that you can come to me with all of your worries, all of your fears, and you can place it on me. And then his peace, this peace that surpasses all understanding, will stand at the gates. They will garrison the gates to our lives and refuse anxious thoughts to come in and direct devastation. So Christian brother or sister tonight, either here or in the hall or online, if you're struggling with anxiety, you need to know that in Christ, everything one day will be gloriously, eternal, eternally, wonderfully okay. This is the peace of God, the peace that Jesus comes and brings to his disciples. The greatest blessing, Sinclair Ferguson says, of the whole gospel, as the disciples huddle filled with anxiety in that room after Jesus has died, and they're thinking to themselves, what are we going to do? The fear has gripped them, and that, that big scroll is unfurling of all their worries. And then what happens? Jesus appears. My peace I give to you. A united people, a praising people, a praying people, a people who enjoy peace, and finally, in a word, a peculiar people. Why a peculiar people? Well, look at, look at what Paul says, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's peculiar, isn't it? Think about these things. This should make us very different from the world around us. The world around us tries to say, if you want to enjoy this peace that Paul's talking about and to enjoy balance in your life, you've got to empty your mind. You've got to come and you've got to meditate and, and then think about waves and, and then empty your mind. Nothing in your mind. That's where you'll get peace. Paul says the direct opposite. The Lord tells us tonight to compa and compels us to fill our minds, but to fill it with good things, with beauty, with authentic things, with true things, with gracious things, to sit as God's people and to have a different perspective on everything that is around us. Look at the stained glass windows in our church. If you're in the hall, sorry, you can't look at the stained glass windows or if you're online. But there's some stained glass windows. Look at the colors. Look at the beautiful colors, right? And the colors that we have here, let that lift our hearts in praise to enjoy these colors. And whenever we have good laws that are made, give thanks for those laws. Think about those laws. Enjoy them. And enjoy the wonderful sounds that an orchestra makes as it comes together and lifts its, it, this beautiful noise up. Marvel at architecture. 
As Christian people sit and think and appreciate these things, fill our minds with them so they can lift us back to verse 4. They can lift us as we rejoice and praise our God. Friends, tonight as we close, relationships, relationships won't mend themselves Joy won't just be our default if we vegetate in our faith. Prayer won't be our first thought when anxiety comes. Our minds will not be filled with good things easily. And so, verse 9, practice these things. Church, we got to work at these things. As a church, we got to help each other in these things. And so, whenever Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, how can we do that? Paul's not here with us. Well, his word is here with us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us by our God, that we may do these things, see these things, and practice them. So, a joyful church takes work. But it's worth it, isn't it? To come into this place and to be refreshed by the joy of our living God, to have our hearts lifted. And so we need to run to Jesus tonight. We need to run to Him. He's our joy. He's the one that we find it in, just as we thought about in, in week one. He's the reconciler that will bring and mend relationships. He's the gentle Savior that will bring His gentleness to bear in relationships. He's the one that we can rejoice in because He has saved us. He's the one that we can come to and that we can praise because He has dealt with our greatest enemy, the one that will cause us anxiety the most, which is death. It's dealt with. We are people of the resurrection. We do not need to fear death. Then Jesus has paid the price for all who have sinned and who will come to Him and repent. So everything that we could ever want is in Jesus. Everything we could ever need. And so He is attractive as He calls people to Himself. Think of the woman at the well. She was attracted to something in Jesus. He was gentle and lowly and filled with joy. And Nicodemus, Nicodemus had met hundreds of thousands of rabbis, but with Jesus, there's something different. And so we want to go to Jesus. We want to be filled again, and we want to be a joyful church. If you're not a Christian here this evening and you're with us or you're online or in the hall, what could keep you from praising Jesus? Do you not want to praise Him? Do you not want to have this joy that we have talked about here tonight? I trust that you will see Jesus and that you will confess your sin and that you will come down.